Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Jason Emanuel, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're excited to introduce today's guest, Jen Henderson, a social scientist at the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences in Boulder, Colorado. Welcome, Jen. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jen, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in social science? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Uh, So I don't have a very straightforward path into social sciences, but I think that's pretty typical of a lot of my colleagues. Um, I actually have a a varied background. I started off studying um, microbiology and psychology and English as an undergrad. I was interested in multiple subjects, so I got a a bachelor's degree um, with two minors. And then I went on to do a master's degree in English literature and a master's of fine arts degree in creative nonfiction writing. And I, I taught for a few years at some universities and thought for sure I was going to be a creative writer, a poet, a nonfiction writer. Um, pursued that until I joined a storm chase group at Virginia Tech in 2008. And we visited several different states throughout the U.S. as um, the students were sort of learning to predict supercells. Um, We were busting with the weather one day and decided to head to Texas to Saragossa. And there in Saragossa, we went to the community center where there was a plaque that described a tornado that had gone through the area in the 80s. Um, I believe it was an F4 And it had killed 30 people and looking around the area, it still seemed as though the tornado, um, you know, had hit maybe the year or two before. And I just remember thinking at that time, I was, I was a writer and I was joining the storm chase to understand sort of the, the culture of storm chasing from a writer's perspective. But I was really struck by a lot of the questions that had to do with societal impacts. So, um, I ended up thinking about this for some time and decided to go back to school for my PhD. And that's what led me into the social sciences. Wow. So now did you get your undergraduate degree in microbiology or was it in English? So I got a double major in English and psychology with a minor in microbiology. So when you switched and decided to get a PhD, did you have to take all those prerequisite courses, like all the calculus and other um, science courses, or did you already have taken some of those with your undergraduate? That's a great question. So I think I remember... (laughs) It's been a while. Um, Because I was preparing to go into the sciences, I originally wanted to be a microbiologist. Um, I had taken, you know, you know, inorganic and organic chemistry, physics, um, calculus. I had taken several of the science kind of core classes. And then the last couple of years of uh, my undergraduate, I took a class on poetry and a class on psychology and fell in love, I guess, with sort of the um, the intersection of those two and changed my major. So when I came back to my PhD in the social sciences, I did not have to take any core science classes or math classes, but in part, that's a function of the fact that I'm a qualitative social science researcher. And so my methods and my approach to problems in the world don't require math or physics or chemistry. I had to take a whole new set of prerequisites in order to shift into being a social scientist. So could you give us an overview of some of the coursework and skills you learned in your 
graduate degree? Sure. So I got a degree in a field called science and technology studies, which is an interdisciplinary field. Uh, a lot of people who went to graduate school with me um, studied, uh, you know, different kinds of science and technology related issues, and they did so through multiple kinds of um, disciplines. So some people would pick, you know, biology, or they would pick um, something like physics as the area that they wanted to understand. So maybe they were studying nuclear problems. For me, I was interested in meteorology and weather prediction as my science and technology sort of focus. But I took classes in anthropology, geography, and history and philosophy. Um, Those were sort of the social science um, and some humanities core that I pulled my theoretical frames and my methodological approaches from. So, for example, in studying uh, the National Weather Service forecasters, which was part of my dissertation work, I spent a lot of time observing them in their naturalistic environment. So I would go into a forecast office and sit with them, trying to understand the warning process sort of firsthand. But I would also conduct interviews and focus groups. And those methods come from both anthropology, um, from sociology, from some geography, human geography. Uh, So those methods tend to be common to multiple disciplines. But the way I framed the problems, the way that I looked at the problems tended to come from um, STS, my um, core discipline. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a lot of different kinds of methods stitched together through my lens and my focus. Wow, yeah. So had you always been interested in weather forecasting and warning? Or what got you to go on that first storm chase, you know? Yeah. uh, So when I was younger and living in Utah, I grew up um, in a little community just off the Great Salt Lake called Sunset, Utah. And uh, I think I was probably 10 or 12 years old, part of a Girl Scout troop. And we were up um, kind of in the mountains on the benches there, Uh, I can't remember what craft we were doing as part of our Girl Scout troop, but somebody said, hey, there's a tornado. And as you know, tornadoes are pretty rare in Utah, but we turned around and sure enough, there was this water spout that I now know is a water spout coming off of the Great Salt Lake and coming onto land. And a lot of the people in the group were pretty scared by this, but I just was fascinated. I stood and sort of watched this, uh, you know, kind of thin spindle of air, wondering what it was like and, you know, what it was doing and why it was there. Uh, if I had known there was a field called meteorology, I might have become a meteorologist <laughs> at that point. But it wasn't anything I was aware of. Um, just my path took me, you know, in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So I think that was the first sort of instance. And then for my master's degree in English, I moved to Kansas, which is, as you know, one of the many states that's kind of a hotbed for dramatic <laughs> activity. And that's when I learned about, um, I started watching the Weather Channel at the time and learned about the Fujita scale and became very interested in Dr. Fujita and read um, actually his memoir and started to think about him from a creative writing perspective, Mm. what his life was like, but also just from a meteorological perspective, what it would have been like to see all of these damage paths and to try and rank tornadoes based on the damage. So I think there have been several moments in my life that have sort of anchored me in weather prediction in ways that I didn't uh, understand when it was happening. So what opportunities did you pursue that you knew would be beneficial um, to securing a job in the social science profession once you 
you know, were in your PhD and you knew that you wanted to have a career that, in that? That's, uh, yeah, that's a good question too. I think it wasn't, again, very straightforward in terms of thinking about careers because when I started as a social scientist, uh, I, I didn't really know about the weather community. I, I came from a creative writing field. I, I knew about Dr. Fujita, but I had never heard of AMS or NWA or you know any of the sort of acronyms that we're all familiar with in our world today. Uh, it wasn't until um, the Birmingham tornado in 2011 that I decided to go to the National Weather Association, which was there, and I found out that there were these communities, these societies like AMS, and that there would be um, other social scientists who worked in that sort of arena. And so I met a few of the social scientists at NWA and then later that year at, at AMS and realized that there were jobs outside of academia, which is a traditional trajectory for many social scientists that they, you know, uh, get a job in geography, like human geography or sociology or anthropology, uh, communication. And then you, uh, you know, do research in those fields so that you can then be um appealing to a department where you would be a faculty member. So that was sort of the traditional way forward for social science that I knew. But in coming to these societies and meeting other um, types of social scientists, I realized there were other tracks. So I realized that a lot of those tracks, depending on which track you went to, a lot of them depend on publications and research, of course. But for the kind of position that I have, it was about writing grants and creating sort of a funding base for yourself and attaching to a research institute um, that's part of a university, that's a co-op with the university, but not necessarily within a department as a faculty member. And um, honestly, at first, I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go. I was torn between being a faculty member, being a research scientist. And even thinking of, you know, the private sector, like what were the jobs in the private sector, you know, doing consulting or user experience, um, there were a lot of different options. Uh, and so it was, it was um, sort of thinking through what the career path would be for me that led me to apply to different kinds of programs. So I, let's uh, see, in 2012, I believe, I applied to be part of the AMS Policy Colloquium. And that was uh, really important in connecting to other members of the weather community and understanding that there were jobs even in Washington, D.C. or in policy arenas that I could be part of. And it also exposed me to a network, um, a huge network and community beyond just that one year. There is, you know, many people may know there the, the AMS policy colloquium goes on each year. And so you have these growing cohorts of communities that share this common experience. So that was really important. And the other thing that I did, I think that really propelled me on my career path as it currently is, I applied for a um, advanced study program pre-doctoral fellowship at the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder. And I got funding to come to Boulder and do some of my dissertation work as part of NCAR. Um, I was in the Mesoscale Microscale Meteorology Lab, or M-cubed, and got to meet several social scientists here. Uh, Rebecca Morris, Julie DeMuth, Heather Lazarus, uh, Olia Wilhelmi, just a, a whole cohort of people who are research scientists doing social science work at the intersection of weather prediction and, um, you know, operational communities, interests with the public and social science. So, you know, when you were in school, did you have any advisors that, um, you know, gave you some inside information about 
different organizations like the NWA or the AMS? Or did you just happen to like, how did you find out about the NWA conference? (laughs) You know, I can't remember exactly how I found out about it. But most people in my discipline of STS had no idea the weather world existed either. Like they just didn't. I mean, not that they didn't know there wasn't prediction. They they got their weather forecast, but they didn't know there was this community. So uh, I remember that when, um, you know, the the tornadoes of 2011 were going through the area. I was living in Virginia, so not too far from the southeast where many of those storms were were heading. And I was captivated by those storms and just started, I think, Googling, um, you know, who was studying these? Were there papers written about this? Uh, I, I found a few names of some of the social scientists I mentioned from NCAR. And I, I'm guessing I just happened upon, you know, a conference in, in Birmingham uh, and I decided to go rather last minute. I mean, the conference started, I think, on a um, a Monday and I flew out on a Friday and just decided to go and see what this was about. I had encouragement from my my faculty members who said, if this is the kind of world that you want to study and you want to know what's going on, you have to be part of the conversation. You need to go to a, you know this conference and just listen and see what the concerns are of this community. So... Um, a lot of the faculty members were sort of in the dark as well. Uh, later, once I became connected uh, to the weather community, I found people at Virginia Tech who were doing the same thing. But we were, you know, in our respective departments and not really working together at the time. So um, some of it was just kind of fortuitous searching Um you know, the weather events themselves, the hazards and trying to find people who were doing work that looked like the kind of work I wanted to do. Well, this, uh, this is good information for our listeners. Anyone who is interested in, in a job in social sciences, this gives them a whole new avenue to explore. So you've, you've led the way for a bunch of people who don't really know what to do. And, uh, it's good advice. Oh, I hope so. It it feels at times, I, I appreciate that because it feels at times like I, I have students at, at AMS come up to me and say, how do you do what you do? I want to do what you do. And they're like, how did you get to where you are? And I think, oh, it's a path that you don't want to duplicate. It just feels so convoluted. <laughs> but I do think there's something about the way that we see career paths, that we see them as these very straightforward linear paths. And the more I talk to people about how they got into their respective fields, there are those people who knew what they wanted to do, knew what programs to get into and went straight for it. And then there's just as many people who sort of wound their way uh, through life and taking classes that were interesting and talking to people and finding communities. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, it's a narrative that I think feels very coherent to me. But as I was going through it, it felt like this adventure and I didn't know where it was going to lead. So um, I do think that's a very common way to think about your career path and not to be nervous about it, that you follow the things you, you're passionate about and you ask a lot of questions and you, you sort of seek out communities who look like the thing you want to become. You can, you can find your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really valuable just to know that there's such a variety of career paths. And if you just follow what interests you, yes, you can get to where you are now. And how, did you, how long have you been at a series now? So I started as a series postdoc a few years ago. So I guess um, I was a series postdoc for two years. That would end 2017 to 2019. Uh, So I just started, I guess, January of this year as a research scientist. So I'm I'm really new to my career. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I sort of saw this as uh, one of many paths forward. Um, I was applying for, you know, jobs at the university. I was applying for jobs as a research scientist in other places. 
And, uh, I, you know, ended up having a couple of different grants get funded that helped create the position I have now. So I'm pretty new, seven months, eight months in. Mm -hmm. Could you go into it a little bit about what you do now or what your research area is? Sure. So I have four uh, grants that I work on that comprise my salary. And Mm -hmm. I wrote several grants when I was a postdoc trying to put together enough funding to create what became a research scientist position at Ceres. And those four grants are all NOAA funded. Um, I wrote them with a lot of different collaborators. Each grant has a different set of collaborators, some physical science, some social science, some from the climate and the weather community, some from the operational community. And so what I do um, kind of on a day-to-day basis now is I'm trying to plan my schedule so that I can meet all of the um, goals that I have for each of those grants, which include field work, which include, you know, um, coordinating meetings with the different collaborators, which include overseeing. Um, I have a postdoc and a few students that I work with from the University of Colorado Boulder and um, sort of, you know, putting together a daily schedule that can be very erratic depending on the week, mm-hmm. but that that has a mix of some field work or data analysis or data planning that has uh, a combination of budgeting and thinking about how to spend the money that came in from the grants and where it's supposed to go and how to coordinate, um, you know, travel and reimbursement and management on that end. Mm-hmm. And then also, of course, writing up the findings um, and presenting them at conferences And then amid all of that, I volunteer um, with different societies and organizations. And so, and I also do things as many of my colleagues do, you know, talk to students, um, you know, participate in other sort of service related activities and um, yeah, think about future funding. I'm, I'm moving into that space, even just eight years or eight months into my, my, uh, my, uh, research scientist position rather. I'm only eight months in, but I'm starting to look at grants to fund me for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot of different activities. No two weeks look the same. So since your job is so varied, do you have anything that you like the most about your job? Is there anything in particular that you do on a day-to-day basis that you're like, oh, I'm glad I have to do this today? <laughs> yeah, I actually love the variety. I think I... I Love that I have different spaces that I'm in. Um, I mean, I have a, an office here at, at NCAR, and I also have a, an office at the NOAA building, the Skaggs Research Building, where I'm in the um, Global Systems Division, which is part of uh, the NOAA framework, and I have an office there. So I'm in different spaces and in different meetings. I like the variety. I think some of my favorite pieces of my job, though, are really collaborating with people that I I respect. Um, a lot of the grants that I'm on are with some of my favorite researchers and favorite scholars and thinkers, and it's it's so much fun to be in meetings with them and think about the kinds of data that we want to collect, to think about the kinds of problems we want to address, and and then of course the other piece of this that is so much fun are it's both working with the operational community. I do a lot of work with the National Weather Service and talking to them and learning from them about the challenges of weather forecasting and prediction and um, trying to meet the needs of society, but also doing so with, you know, these great collaborators that include young minds, students, postdocs, just a variety of people. So I think I I would not do well um, if my job were very uh, similar day to day. I so I, I feel lucky that I get to do the job that I do. Mm-hmm. And what would you say to like is the greatest challenge about your job? 
Oh, I'm learning the challenges of my job. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I know the greatest one yet, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's a lot of time management, which is not something that you expressly learn. I mean, you, you sort of figure that out through school. You figure that out through um, different activities that you take on uh, professional development and planning for your career. But grant management is a, a different kind of time management. And so thinking about how to coordinate with other people and keep multiple grants moving forward. Um, I, I have four grants. I know people who have as many as seven to 10 grants that oh, they're wow. on. So it becomes a really complex sort of negotiation to make sure that you're moving forward and, and meeting deadlines and coordinating with people. Um, and then of course, the other challenge that I'm just learning about is, uh, that because my, my grants are a two year sort of cycle trying to figure out the funding for the next two years. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of challenge of completing work that's ongoing while looking to the future for new funding um, opportunities. So I don't know yet that what kind of challenge that will be because I have current funding, but I'm imagining that um, there could be challenges in terms of making sure I'm fully funded and have a salary for the next two years beyond this first two-year grant cycle. Right. That makes sense. So you mentioned that you didn't have a, um, a clear path when you started uh, to become a research scientist. So is there anything that you wish you had done differently in your career or do you kind of like the way it all worked out? Um, the adventure, as you said. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot that I would change in retrospect. I feel like um, in, in seeing sort of the, the lay of the land in terms of jobs. Uh, if I were thinking about the audience who might be listening to this podcast, I imagine there are a lot of people who come from meteorology or atmospheric sciences or climate, uh, you know, contacts who are interested in doing social science work. Uh, and so they might have a background in science, but be interested in adding some social science emphasis to their, their, their program. And I think that that's a really smart way to move forward because as I found, um, the academic model is really the clearest and most open to social scientists of all types. Um, if you're a hybrid, what I call a hybrid scholar, somebody who does like meteorology is a bachelor's degree and maybe you move into communication or some other sort of sociology or ge human geography for a master's or a PhD, you have then two different kinds of expertise that you can draw on for jobs. And I will say that I still am hoping to see more jobs come open for social scientists who are not first trained as physical scientists. Um, so there's a lot of job opportunities out there for social scientists, but they get advertised through NOAA or they're advertised through um, research communities where they prefer you to have a background in physical science as well. That's starting to change, but it's something I don't know that I would go back in and do like a meteorology degree per se. I like the training I have, but I do at times feel like um, there's a disconnect sometimes between, you know, an understanding of what social science is social sciences are and who social scientists are um, and the kinds of work that they do in this context um, and their training. Mm -hmm. So I think that if people are coming in with both a physical science and a social science kind of training, they're maybe better situated for the job market than I've been. But that hasn't prevented me from getting the work I want. It just has made it a bit more challenging. So would you say that it's mostly universities or um, places like NOAA where um, social scientists are hired? Or, I mean, are there any other 
private sector type jobs for social scientists? Yeah, I, I I would say that the primary place where most of um, you know the social scientists who come from uh, you know within the weather community, the weather enterprise, a lot of them are within academia. That's sort of the the home. So they collaborate with other communities um, with NOAA. They get research funding from NOAA, or they collaborate with partners in NOAA. Um, that's still a primary mechanism for being hired within NOAA. I'm not familiar with many uh, lines that are like actual jobs that are uh, available to social scientists. There are some, but there's not as many uh, in NOAA itself, unless you have a physical science background. I tend to see more people come from, you know, a physical science background who who then transition into a social science background, having uh, better success within NOAA. I think that's changing, but um, I think that that's still a space where we could use more social scientists. And then the private sector is really interesting. It's not as familiar to me. I'm starting to become more familiar with how social scientists are um, used or hired in private sector. And it's often a lot of user experience research. So people who are working at the interface of, you know, product and technology design with focus groups and understanding how to improve, uh, you know, predictive tools or other kinds of products that users might use um, and using social science methods to apply to that. So interviews, focus groups, um, just a variety of different skill sets that way. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I could see um, the private sector using social scientists specifically for that. Yeah. And there may be other ways that the private sector, you know, hires social scientists. It, as I said, it's the field that I'm least familiar with in terms of social science. Um, just because of the path that I took came through academia and, and into research. And so, um, but I'm sure there are more ways that they, that they hire social scientists. I'm just not as familiar. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned getting to work with researchers who you really respect and admire, but along the way, did you have any mentors who provided you with career guidance or advice? Yeah, I did. I had several. And I think there's more the formal mentors that you think of, you know, my advisors, um, my postdoc advisor, Lisa Dilling, um, you know, they're my, my, you know, PhD advisors from, um, STS. So, you know, Gary Downey and, um, Saul Helfen, these are people who sort of came into my life as mentors. That was their job. And they did a wonderful job of helping me see sort of different paths forward and alternatives. But a lot of the mentorship that I've received came very informally. It's sort of, (laughs) you know, you, you, you put out into the universe, I'd really like some mentorship. And then you, you sort of find people who are doing work that you're interested in or take an interest in the work that you're doing and have come up and talked to you at a conference or um, that maybe you met um, in another kind of networking event. And you just start a correspondence with them. And they tend to be either, you know, junior to you in a, in a certain way and you become kind of a mentor to them or they become their senior and you ask them advice. Um, so there, there are, I think, a, a larger set of informal mentors who might not even consider themselves mentors if I asked them, you know, <laughs> but they have been mentors to me in very important ways by teaching me how research is done, by talking to me about career paths and alternatives by inviting me into different spaces and conversations with people, you know, to be part of a workshop, um, to be part of a colloquium, um, inviting me to speak at something. You get 
invitations into these worlds um, to be even just be an attendee. And you, you start to open up the possibilities of, of how you see yourself and also the networks that you tend to move in. Mm-hmm. So both formal and informal mentorship, I think, has been really important to me. So you're currently a member of the AMS Council. Um, can you describe your duties as a council member? Yes. This is one of uh, sort of a huge honor for me. It's uh, um, something I never expected to happen. Um, I was asked to, uh, you know, be a member of council, um, was voted in by the council itself as a fifth member. So you can get into council a couple of different ways. There's like the broader membership that votes on nominations that are solicited by the nominating committee. And then once you're a member of council, they solicit from the council members, other additional members that should be included to round out the expertise, the different sectors. Um, and so I was nominated and voted in that way. Um, so I, spend a lot of my time with my colleagues who are council members thinking about the governance of AMS. It's That's sort of our main goal. And that can range from, you know, thinking about the budgeting issues that and, and the, the financial sort of health of AMS and voting on budgets and voting on different measures and changes to the budget um, to thinking about emergent issues in society that come up as important to AMS membership that we would want to weigh in on. So, uh, you know, Recently, uh, a lot of, um, you know, sort of interest in and, and importance of the Me Too movement and thinking about harassment and bullying and um, sort of professional conduct has become a, a really important tenant of AMS. It's been there all along, but it, it sort of the profile was raised. So we, you know, there's a task force that's looking into professional conduct. Um, there's uh, a committee, ethics committee that's been convened. So these kinds of emergent things that can happen in, in society that um, become important to AMS and the council sort of takes the lead on thinking through, does it necessitate, you know, new committees or boards? Does it necessitate activities or task forces to look into what to do? Um, So we are involved in a variety of different kinds of activities as the council. We meet um, every, um, I guess, every fall before the annual meeting. So we'll meet in September in Boston and we have a meeting to look at some of the um, items that are sort of on the agenda, as again, ranging from financial to sort of internal infrastructural and membership issues. And then we meet again at AMS and do some of our larger sort of voting and um, discussion there. So it's, it sort of spreads throughout the year. Uh, You, you spend a lot of time on phone calls and voting on things through email and phone calls, but then you meet in person and discuss really interesting uh, sorts of issues that arise. Well, that sounds like a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. It's what I love the most about it, I think, is that you get this bird's eye view of what the society is doing and you become, I, at least for me, speak for myself, I'm amazed. This is a volunteer organization, largely. Uh, six commissions, 140 boards and um, committees, all of these people, volunteers, giving their time to make the society a success. It's it's pretty phenomenal how much effort is put into um, keeping AMS, you know, the healthy society that it is. So looking forward, how do you see the future job market for careers in your field? 
Good question. A very prediction-oriented question, which I love <laughs> since I've had a prediction. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely certain uh, what the, where the future is going to be. I think it's healthy. I think there's a growing uh, respect and interest in integrating social sciences into the meteorological community. It's been going on long before I was a member of AMS. Um, there were some really seminal efforts early on. Uh, you might have heard of was is. Um, it's an acronym W A S, and then that little star I S. And mm. it's it's a group of people who, in I guess the early two thousands, were thinking about how to transform what what was to what is, and thinking about how to integrate social sciences into meteorology. So this work was going on before I joined, and I think that that uh, and along with other efforts has really been propagating throughout the community and growing. Um, so I think there are opportunities for jobs. I think there will still, of course, be jobs in academia because that's sort of a primary employer. I imagine that it's going to grow in NOAA and in private industry, especially as we you know, face increasing challenges um, sort of at the interface between weather and climate hazards and society. I mean, there's just, there's never going to, unfortunately, be a shortage of uh, a need to understand all the complexities of the human and the physical world. So I think that those jobs are going to grow. I imagine what's really exciting is we can't even think today what will be the jobs of the future. I mean, I'm thinking of more entrepreneurial, you know, consulting kinds of jobs, um, consortiums and centers that get built around a particular problem um, and how those might necessitate, you know, expertise that would bring together multiple groups to think through problems. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm more excited about the, the kinds of jobs I can't even imagine that will exist in the future um, than the kinds that exist today. So given the current job market, um, if somebody was applying for a position as a social scientist, what, what would you consider some must-haves on a resume? Would it be more internships or would you be, do you think people are looking for um, individuals coming out of school who have some type of experience, field experience, or, um, you know, they've done some work outside of just university? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. I think, um, so I would say that it, it depends on what job you're going into, of course, uh, you know, tailoring your, your resume to those sorts of fields. But uh, I think having a, a really strong base in a in a you know set of disciplines or a discipline so that you know the theories and the methods um, of this you know whatever social science field that you're you're sort of an expert in. Uh, if you're an anthropologist, for example, you'd want to make sure that you've done a lot of uh, ethnographic work, which includes observations and interviews and focus groups. You'd want to make sure that you had presented, you know, conferences and that you had published, but you'd also probably want to think about, um, you know, other kinds of job opportunities that anthropologists could be involved with in um, private industry. And that might include internships. Um, some of my colleagues, the students that I work with now have done internships, for example, at Yahoo. Uh, at Google, um, Twitter. So thinking about where, uh, you know, if you're interested in, for example, communication of weather information, thinking about the platforms and the employers who are creating those platforms and where you could go to do internships with those. Um, so I do think that's really important. But also say, you know, thinking about um, leadership, 
Uh, one of the things AMS has is the Early Career Leadership Academy that they just started a few years ago. And I was part of that. And it was it was wonderful to think about leadership skills in a very formalized way. I think once you have a job, um, you know, your employer thinks about professional development for leadership, but for a society to offer that sort of opportunity, um, it was helpful for me to think about leadership before I entered, uh, you know, my particular career. So I think looking for opportunities either through your university or societies or even, you know, other sorts of networks that you might have where you can you can gain sort of uh, a perspective on the kinds of skills that employers might be looking for, things like leadership that show that you're interested in, in not only maybe being, you know, a good employee, but also taking the lead on some project or becoming somebody who shapes the vision for your particular um, employer at some point is important. That's great advice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So we always like to ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each episode. So if you can meet one famous person, alive or dead, who would it be? All right. So this is um, this is pretty easy for me. I would I would meet Dr. Tetsuya Fujita. Uh, he's um, somebody I've been fascinated with a very long time, um, and I'm actually writing a book on him for AMS and traveling to Japan in October to meet with some of his family and community there. Mm. And there is. As much as I read about him, as much as I talk to people who knew him, there is no substitute for being able to have you know met him in person. Uh -huh. So I really wish I could have a dinner conversation with him. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jen, and sharing your experiences as a social scientist. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time, rain or shine. <laughs>